Today we're going to be talking about Mark chapter 14. This is a pretty long chapter and deals with some of the most important events of Jesus' life. So let's go to the Word, read it together, and then discuss it. Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages, and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go to the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely not I. It is one of the twelve, he replied. One who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them. And then they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, Even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that, if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. 
yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping. Because their eyes were heavy, they did not know what to say to him. Returning a third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man, wearing nothing but a linen garment, was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving the garment behind. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all of the high priests, elders, and teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests in the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple, and in three days will build another not made by man. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophecy! And the guards took him and beat him. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You were also with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and he went out to the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, This fellow is one of them. Again he denied it. And after a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word of Jesus had had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is a remarkable passage. One of the most revered and 
uh, somber in the entire Bible. Here we have, essentially, the final night of Jesus' life. And so let's start from the beginning of this chapter and go through it piece by piece and explain what's actually happening here. First happens the day before the Passover meal would have been eaten, and we would say that is the Thursday of the week. Now, the Passover was coming, and the disciples were getting ready for it. Of course, Jesus himself was getting ready because he knew it was about to happen. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, this would have been Wednesday first. Uh, The first thing that happens here is that the Jewish leaders do not want to arrest Jesus and cause a riot. Now, I I want you to remember this for a moment. Jesus, uh, on Sunday of that week, what we would call Palm Sunday, has entered Jerusalem to a roaring crowd, worshiping him and honoring him as the next king of the Jews. It still seems as though that is happening. The, The crowds are still on Jesus' side. They still seem to be supporting him, and the Jewish leaders are afraid that Um, if they arrest Jesus, they will have a riot on their hands because how dare they arrest the next king of the Jews? So the disciples are relaxing outside of Jerusalem in Bethany when a woman who is Mary, the sister of Martha, comes with this alabaster jar full of expensive perfume. Now, to set the stage here, uh, the disciples would have gathered money and donations as a means of supporting themselves here in order to eat, in order to uh, buy food or to have housing, uh, buy supplies. And so uh, Judas would have been the one in charge of all of that, kind of, um, you know, the one who's kind of the accountant of the group and the uh, money holder. Now, something as expensive as as a jar of expensive perfume that was a year's wages, they would not have purchased that. That would have been a donation that someone would have given. So imagine how much you make in a year. And imagine that if you were um, with your teacher raising funds, someone writes a check for the wage that you make an entire year. That's how much this was worth. And you can imagine, especially in a poor society of people living on the edge, that was a, a huge amount of money not to be, you know, quote, wasted. <clears throat> so when Mary takes this jar and breaks it, essentially opening it permanently, you can't put it back in, and anoints Jesus, you can, you can understand a little bit of the surprise and shock of the disciples. In fact, uh, the text makes it clear it's not just Judas who gets upset about this. It's plural. They rebuked her harshly. So this is kind of a group think here, that they're shocked, they're surprised, and they think that she has just, you know, essentially wasted an entire year's donation for Jesus. And Jesus tries to remind them about the bigger picture here. And I think this is well uh, taken for all of us. That Jesus is saying, Mary is keeping her eyes on something much bigger than money. You will always have the poor. And look, Jesus has been able to make fishes and loaves appear out of nowhere more than once. So trust that Jesus will replenish your financial stocks and use the means that you have, which are not yours anyway. They are God's. You're just the caretaker of those means, to use them for righteous means. And in this case, it was to anoint Jesus for his death and burial. So that's a remarkable passage, and I think something that we can apply to ourselves. At the end of this, though, we do know that Judas had reached his breaking point. Many of them got 
upset at Mary for having used the expensive perfume to anoint Jesus, but it's Judas who goes over the edge here. One of the twelve, he went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. The text makes it pretty clear the priests, although they may have <clears throat> you know, wanted someone to come forward to help betray Jesus, the text makes it very clear that this was Judas' initiative. He took the initiative on his own to go out and he had to work for it. He had to leave. He probably had to slip away when no one was watching. <clears throat> he had to secretly meet with the um, chief priests to betray Jesus, and then he had to slip back. So this was premeditated. This was uh, Judas in his clear, uh, cogent mind. He has decided to betray his teacher, and he knows what's going to happen. If he betrays Jesus, he knows Jesus is going to be killed. So Judas is guilty here, no doubt about it. Now that was Wednesday. Uh, pardon, pardon me earlier, that was Wednesday. This is Thursday now. <clears throat> the Essentially, uh, the day before the Passover feast would be eaten, and again, it's a little bit of confusion about the reckoning of days and nights and what a day means to a Jew versus our modern day. <clears throat> I want to make this comment about the Lord's Supper. To the disciples and to Jesus, the meal they're about to eat that we call the Last Supper was the Passover meal for them. Okay, so let's just kind of clear that up. For the disciples and for Jesus, this Last Supper was their Passover meal. So here is the account of what happens. And most of the people who may be listening to this are probably not familiar with the Seder and the, the sequence of events that would happen in the Passover meal. Here is the significance of Passover. Passover, one of the first um, you know, regular ritual institutions uh, established for the Jewish people all the way back in the time of Moses. So we're talking about 1400 BC, so 3,400 years ago, a long time ago, right in kind of the beginnings of the foundational period of the Jewish uh, uh, era. The Passover celebrated the deliverance of the Jewish people being delivered out of Egypt from their slavery to be able to go back to Canaan and establish their own homeland promised to them um, uh, by God. The Passover itself, the word Passover, signifies that the tenth plague, essentially, of um, God against Egypt, there were ten plagues, the tenth was the angel of death who would strike down the firstborn of all living things in Egypt if Pharaoh did not let um, the Hebrews go. That included humans and animals. <clears throat> that night, that that plague or that angel of death was going to visit Egypt, the Jews went through a ritual uh, ceremony. <clears throat> they uh, prepared bread, but was unleavened, meaning it had no yeast, so it didn't rise. So it would be kind of the consistency of crackers. Um, they ate a meal uh, with uh, lamb, <clears throat> They had certain herbs. They went through certain prayers. Um, and uh, they got all of their jewelry and their clothes ready. Essentially, they are ready to leave Egypt. Okay, so lots of symbolism here. The faith, the trust, the fear. The Passover itself means that in order for the angel of death to know that it was supposed to pass over a Hebrew family and not strike down the firstborn in that family, that family would have had to have sacrificed a lamb and taken the blood of that lamb and then put it over the doorpost and kind of the, the, uh, the sides of the doorway of the Hebrew house. 
that sign was a symbol to the angel of death. Pass over this house. We are God's people. Do not strike us down and kill us. It was God's expectation that the Hebrews or the Jews would celebrate this every year until he said, don't do it anymore. Essentially, keep, keep uh, you know, um, observing this Passover. And they would. Uh, there would be some periods where they would, uh, it would fall out of favor. It was reinstituted again during the monarchy. Um, but essentially, at the time of Jesus, for hundreds and hundreds of years, um, the Jewish people were celebrating this Passover, which happened during the first full moon of spring every year. <clears throat> this night, for the Last Supper, is that Passover meal for the disciples. Here is a very important point. This was to be the last Passover. I'll make that comment again. For the new covenant era that is about to be inaugurated, this would be the last Passover that the Jews should ever observe. The disciples go into a room in the city of Jerusalem and they eat and celebrate this Passover meal. There's a lot of things that happen during this meal. Um, <clears throat> uh, first, <laughs> Jesus kind of you know lays it on them that someone is going to betray them. Now I can only imagine um, what was going on in that room when you know Jesus has kind of alluded to this already, but he makes this big bombshell again here and, and very you know dramatically. I tell you the truth: one of you will betray me one who is eating with me. Now, there's only 12 you know, people in Jesus at this table, and they're all looking at each other like, who is this going to be? <clears throat> of course, uh, one by one, they said, surely not I. And he says, it's one of the 12. One who dips bread into the bowl with me. Well, there's only two people that sat, uh, one on each side of Jesus, who that could have possibly been, as we know from the other Gospels. On one side was John, his beloved disciple, and of course, on the other is Judas. So by process of elimination, we are down to one of two men. <clears throat> the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. So while they're eating, we're not exactly sure in which part of the meal this happens, but we do know that at the point of the eating, uh, we know that Jesus is saying that now he wants you to take this, this bread and he's going to now make a connection that this bread is Jesus' body. Take, eat. This is my body. Whether you believe, literally, as Catholics do, that that became his physical flesh, or you believe, as Protestants do, that it is a figurative metaphor for his, um, for his spiritual flesh, the point here is this. What Jesus is instituting here is a new practice that is no longer considered a Passover. What he's talking about here is an effort to understand that when you become a disciple of Jesus, you will consume the word of God, and that is Jesus' teachings, as if it were bread. I want you to think for a moment what happens when you eat food. When you eat something and that food goes into your body, it becomes you. It becomes your body. It becomes your, your head and your heart and your hands. That food is turned into chemicals, biologically into substances that are turned into fat and protein and carbohydrate, nerve cells and muscle cells. It becomes you. Jesus makes very many comments before this night saying that uh, the bread I give you is, is, is more important. I am the bread of life. That was one of the I am statements. He didn't mean that it was going to be a Snickers bar that you eat so that you could feel better after your hockey game. 
What he is saying is, he wants you to consider his teaching, in fact, his very essence, as something to consume and live on that, and it will become a part of you. When you consume the Word of God and you consume Jesus' teaching, it becomes a part of you. Think of it that way, as if to make you something new again. The next thing that they're going to do is share a drink, which is the wine. Here's a little, just kind of brief rundown. There were five cups of wine. Four of those were consumed during the Passover, okay? And there would be statements made before each ceremonial cup of wine was drank. The first is the cup of sanctification. I will take you out. That means this is God's promise saying, I will take you out of Egypt. The second would be the cup of deliverance. I will save you. The third would be the cup of redemption. I will redeem you. What does redeem mean? Redeem means that you have been bought beforehand, maybe as a slave, and so a price has been paid for you, um, and someone owns you. The redemption means that God, the original owner of your soul, who he made at creation and when you were born, will buy your soul back. Okay, And if you want to think of it as buying it back from Satan or buying it back from death, both of those are, I think, appropriate. But God is purchasing you back to, to basically bring you back home and pay the price that was incurred for your uh, leaving or rebellion or being sold into sin. That third cup of redemption, I will redeem you, that is the cup of the covenant here that Jesus shares with his disciples and becomes the cup of communion, or the sacraments. What Jesus says next is also striking. They would have drank a fourth cup, would have been uh, that cup of praise or restoration. I will take you as a nation. That would have been the fourth cup. That's the cup that Jesus says he is not going to drink until the end times, until he comes back. So uh, he doesn't drink it, which again would have changed the script of how Passover is usually Um, run. There was a fifth cup that was poured uh, ceremonially. It was called the cup of Elijah. That was the cup of, I will bring you to the land I promised. The idea there was that was set aside for Elijah and not drunk, um, which would um, be for Elijah to come, for him, you know, ceremonially to come and, and drink that so that he is ready to announce the arrival of the Messiah. Well, guess what? He already did. And we know from Jesus' own statements that that was John the Baptist. So that fifth cup doesn't need to be drunk because John the Baptist has already come and announced the Messiah. So that's just a little bit of background there. Okay. After this meal, they sung a hymn, probably from what you would call Psalm 118, the Hallel. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And other hymns. And then from the... A Passover a ceremony, the Jews then would have stayed up that night to keep watch. That was their ceremony, right? In the days of Egypt, it would have been to keep watch when the angel of death has passed over and Pharaoh finally relents and says to Moses, you may go and your people may go. Then they left that night. <clears throat> well, the disciples were supposed to stay awake, but we know now that they didn't. They all fell asleep. And Jesus is saying that they're all going to fall away and not just fall asleep, but, but fall away and deny him. And of course, you know, Peter is, is, is coming out saying, 
I won't deny you under any circumstances, uh, but we all know what happens next. Jesus says that, of course, you are going to deny me. All of you are going to abandon me. And all of the others said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane. That means olive press. You can think of it as a metaphor for what's about to happen to poor Jesus. He's going to be squeezed until his very life comes out of him. Jesus says, sit here a while while I pray. I want to make this comment here about what Jesus went and prayed. I think Jesus, again, when he prays, and it is recorded in the word of God here, it is meant to be a symbol for what we should do. As Jesus did, we should do also. Jesus prayed the night before he had something he knew was going to be a very difficult moment of his life. He even said to his father, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. This shows tremendously Jesus' humanity here. Jesus was the incarnate spiritual aspect of God, the Father, but he was also a human being with flesh and bone and feeling. And here Jesus is very, very, very upset. And it comes through here. In fact, we know from the other Gospels that he sweat blood. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. So what he is saying here is, I would like you to not have to let me go through this. But, and even though take this cup from me, which means I don't want to die, yet not what I will, but what you will. So this gets back at what I said earlier in a previous podcast, which is, yes, you should be very specific about what you pray for, and you should expect that you will get it if it is a righteous prayer, and if not what you have asked for, something better. But the caveat, of course, always is that it will be God's will and God's choice of whether to give that to you or take something away from you or not. And here Jesus does admit, I know that it is your plan, Father, for me to die on the cross, but I don't want to. I wish you would take it away, but this is your will and that is more important. I think that's a very humble and realistic way to pray. Of course, then he returns to his disciples. They have all fallen asleep multiple times. And Jesus continues to pray all night until finally it's time Uh, for him to be arrested. The guards sent by the high priests and the religious leaders show up with swords and clubs. Again, remember, Jesus' disciples, the crowds, and the high priests all thought that Jesus was about to start a military rebellion here and that he was going to rise up in a violent, bloody um, coup. So they come armed to the teeth because they think a fight's about to break out. Judas comes, he gives a signal, he kisses his teacher, and the men arrest him. And Jesus himself makes this very clear comment. Again, he's trying to tell them, I am not a military leader come to destroy the Roman Empire through swords and violence. He says, am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple and you did not arrest me. He's just making the comment as clear as he can. I'm not a military ruler, and yet you just don't seem to get that through Peter draws his sword and cuts the ear of Malchus, uh, the high priest's assistant, off. The names are scrubbed here. And again, if we do think that Mark has been written through the words of Peter being dictated to Mark, um, we can see how the author would want to take that, you know, kind of anonymize that, that, you know, take Peter's name out of it. But he does record the event. Very interesting here. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Why would that be here? I know a lot of people see that and read that and they think, why is that in the Bible? Here's why. Scholars think that this person is Mark. 
the author of this gospel. If that's true, it would make a lot of sense. First, there's no reason for this to be put in here. Second, the person here mentioned is anonymous. If that person was hanging around with the disciples, they would have known who it was. So why put it in and why take the name out? The next connection here might be that the fact that the Last Supper happened in this room that that we have read about in this chapter, this may have been the house that was owned by the parents of John Mark himself. This is a little loose, um, but the church history um, and uh, certainly tradition says that that house probably belonged to John Mark uh, or his family, and they were the ones that allowed the disciples to come and have their Last Supper in the upper room. That is the house that the disciples flee to after Jesus is crucified and where when Jesus is uh, uh, raised from the dead, um, they run back to that. Peter runs back to that very house, John Mark's house, his parents' house, and announces, you know, and they, you remember the story, he knocks on the door and no one lets him in because they're scared to death that it's, it's the, the Romans and they've come and they've found them. So again, um, That's not listed here directly in the scriptures, but church tradition and many scholars think that's what's happening here. So here, the the last part of chapter 14 is, in fact, the most uh, aggravating, I think, if you're a Christian, but this has to be fulfilled. Jesus is taken to the Sanhedrin. Remember, the Sanhedrin is this group of 70 men plus the high priest who were the religious rulers of Jerusalem. They had a lot of power to make a lot of laws. Um, They even had the power to kill someone if that was a Gentile who was entering into the holy area of the Jewish temple. That was the only reason they could unilaterally kill a person. Otherwise, they were not allowed to execute someone. They had to go to the Romans and seek their permission. Here you can see the Sanhedrin holding what is essentially a kangaroo court in the middle of the night. Even for Jewish standards, this was an illegal act for this group to have this kind of, again, this fake court in the middle of the night to condemn Jesus. I want you to kind of focus on these facts about the testimony because this is important. According to Jewish Mosaic law, in order to condemn a person of a serious capital offense, something they could actually be executed for, there would have to be at least two or more witnesses who came forward independently and were able to give the exact same story to corroborate the evidence against a person. Right? We don't have CSI in those days. We don't have DNA evidence. We don't have fingerprints. Um, m- most of the time, crimes, if they were not witnessed directly, um, uh, they would be either witnessed by someone or uh, someone who has talked to someone who has witnessed a crime were almost the only ways you could prove that someone actually committed a crime. And so testimony was the number one way in which people were committed in, in courts back then of the crimes they had been committed. In order for a conviction to happen, we would need at least two different people to come forward with the same story. How remarkable is it? that of all of the people who are obviously in this room at that night trying to convict Jesus, not two people could be found who had the same story about what Jesus said. They were all trying to lie. They are all trying to convict him. But no one could come forward who had the same story as another person. I think that's remarkable. It shows the supernatural power here that... <laughs> uh, that Jesus was who he said he was, and it shows just how devious these people were trying to to lay a, a charge on Jesus, which was absolutely false. So everyone's lying, and it's obvious that everyone's lying. 
So the high priest is figuring this out. He's figuring out that, honestly, this guy probably is, you know, um, above board. It's going to be very hard to find any, you know, verbal evidence. So he just asks Jesus directly. And at first, Jesus doesn't give him an answer, which I think is also remarkable. And if you were a Jew of that period and the high priest spoke to you, you would, you would speak back because that was a very important authority figure. But here... Finally, the only way the high priest can get Jesus to say anything is directly ask him, Are you the Christ, meaning the Messiah, son of the Blessed One? And Jesus answers him, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, coming on the clouds of heaven. Well, at this, the room erupts into rage and anger. And, um, you know, they're just, they're tearing their clothes and they start to spit on him and they beat him. All right, they're screaming at him. Well, they can't kill him. They can't execute him unilaterally, so they're going to have to go to the Romans. So now it's a matter of let's just rough this guy up, and in the morning we're going to take him over to Pilate's place and we're going to try and hold a court there and see if we can get him killed. The last piece here in chapter 14 is, of course, um, essentially the reckoning that happens because of what Peter has said. He said he would not deny his Lord and three times now he has. And here we see Peter outside the courtyard. Again, I remind you that the people from Galilee, this was many, many miles away from Jerusalem. They would have had a different kind of speech pattern. It might be similar to the way that Northerners in the U.S. speak from Southerners in the U.S. They have different dialects, and you can instantly tell if you're from Boston, or you're from the South, or you're from the North. You know, you have different speech patterns, and these people instantly recognize that Peter is, in fact, a Galilean. He is not from around here, right? And they accuse him of that, and Peter goes so far as to start cursing that I'm not a follower of Jesus, and you can just see immediately as the as the uh, crow is is making his um, you know is twice he's crowing, Peter recognizes this and he broke down and wept. He wept bitterly. This is a very important moment for Christianity. This is the moment before Jesus is convicted. Uh, in just a few hours' time, Jesus will be tortured and killed on the cross. But again, I just want to kind of take a step back kind of draw the connection between the Passover, the lamb, and what's about to happen with Jesus. The whole point here was that there would be, uh, first of all, redemption of God for his people. And that there would be, if you're talking about the Day of Atonement specifically, there would have to be a sacrifice made in order for God's wrath to be poured out and to be abated. For thousands of years, at least, what is it, by this point, at least 1,500 years by this point, um, that wrath was was abated yearly through uh, a sacrifice of a, uh, you know, a, uh, essentially a lamb without blemish. But that was not permanent. Uh, killing an animal that may look on the outside like it is uh, without a mark or without blemish is still not a permanent transaction in God's eyes. Blood must be spilled Um, for sin to be forgiven. And every year the Jewish people would sacrifice a lamb and another lamb would or goat would be freed and that would kind of symbolize that all of the punishment and wrath would be poured out and that that, uh, goat would run off. That's what we call scapegoat. That's where we get that idea. 
Um, but for the lamb that's killed, that lamb is sacrificed. God is now seeing things in a very different light here, at least uh, for our people, um, for the people of God, that that atonement is going to take place, but because an animal does not count, uh, that will not be permanent. God is going to offer up the only other thing in the universe that could possibly take the place uh, of a sacrifice, but be so perfect and so pure as if that one sacrifice will be permanent. And that, of course, is Jesus, his son. Join us next time as we read from Mark chapter 15 and the last day of Jesus' life. Mm -hmm.